Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 41, 1 through 10. Coastlands, listen to me in silence and let the peoples, let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward, then let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused the one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword, as the wind-driven chaff with, the, with his bow. He pursues them, passing on in safety. By a way, he had not been traversing with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and have come. Each one helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil, saying to the soldering, It is good. And he fashions it or fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Our scripture passage for the reading and the preaching of God's word is found in Ephesians chapter 1. These opening six verses of Paul's letter to the church there at Ephesus. Indeed, may the Lord now uh, mix faith uh, in the hearing of the word of God as it is read to you. Ephesians 1 at verse, uh, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let's unite in prayer together for just a moment. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we turn to you now asking for your almighty blessing upon us. And know how we thank you, O God, that you give us the gift of your word. And you give to us your spirit that as we open your word, you are our helper, our teacher, Uh, the one to guide and to comfort. Uh, You also, O Lord, uh, put into our hearts and minds uh, things that perhaps are new, different, perhaps even strange, 
But Lord, you are yet the one ministering and serving as we are relying upon you and your word and turning to you in your word. And so, O oh God, uh, be our help and be our strength. Uh, we thank you that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Uh, we thank you that we are about your glory. And we thank you that you give us your sure word of your promises and your commands. Uh, teach us now, teach every one of us, O oh Lord. We come now in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the images in the Bible concerning who God is, is the image of the rock. We think in terms of that which is stable, uh, that which is unshakable, the rock. There's no greater place for stability than God himself. Isn't that what we need day by day by day, right? More and more of God and who he is uh, being that place of a refuge and a strength. And less and less of man. We need more and more of God. God is our rock. God is our foundation. Even when there are the attempts uh, to shake that foundation, to shake that rock, and then flowing from that, uh, to shake the church, that the church might know instability. There are those attempts that abound. Remember what the hymn writer says. The hymn writer says, the church shall never perish her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. You remember that hymn? You remember that hymn, that line of that hymn, a favorite one? Yes, there are threats all around us, but God is the stable one. God is the rock and the anchor uh, for us. Uh, the Bible teacher, now he's passed away some four, five, six years ago now. The Bible teacher, R.C. Sproul, has written these words. The conflict between Christianity and secular humanism is a conflict of ultimates. This conflict allows no room for compromise. If God is ultimate, then manifestly man is not. Conversely, if man is ultimate, then God cannot be. There can only be one ultimate. So Sproul is writing about this conflict of ultimates. Who is number one? Let me ask you, who is your number one? Children, children here gathered this morning. Uh, God is number one. He is not number two. He is not number three. He is the leader. He's the first leader, and we are his followers. God is number one. Well, right here in Ephesians chapter one, uh, it speaks of God who is number one, the very ultimate one. He is God. He is like that rock. He's like that ginormous mountain with grandeur and majesty. This is our God. Now, we've only done just a brief sort of cursory reading of these first six verses. But if you spend time this afternoon, tonight or this week, looking at more of these verses in this chapter, you'll conclude the same. He is this one of all majesty. He is this one of all grandeur. He's the supreme one. You know, it's one thing to fly over the Himalayan mountain range. Or we might go flight seeing, flight seeing over the Alaska range. And there is that great one, Denali. And Denali, she stands there saluting uh, Almighty God some 20,320 feet. You see, it's one thing to fly over a mountain. It really and truly is all some, something altogether different 
to be climbing the mountain. And that's what we're going to do in Ephesians 1, just for the moments we have together, is that we're drawn up close to climb this mountain who is our God, all of this majesty, all of the wonder and the the supremacy of who he is. We are invited in Ephesians 1 now to come close to this majesty. If you're taking notes this morning, we have a purpose in the passage. What is our purpose here this morning? Is to know that God is our rock-solid stability and security and that he he is at work in the church. He is our rock-solid stability and security and he's at work in the church. There'll be three lessons here as we pull these verses together and think about these verses. First, just right off the pages of Scripture, are the blessings of our God. He is the God himself who is blessed and he blesses us. Secondly, we'll look at the teaching of the Bible called election. Just an opening introductory way, the doctrine called election, and then we'll ask the question, so what? So what? Let's take it up now. This is our God in his grandeur. In the first place, we speak of himself being blessed and himself being the one who gives us blessings. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word blessed or blessed is used four times here. Who has blessed us, as the passage goes on, with every what? Every spiritual blessing. Then look at the verse of in, uh, end of verse 6. He has blessed us in his beloved. You can't escape it, right? <laughs> the grandeur and the supremacy of our God begins on this note of who he is in his goodness, his greatness and his goodness, and who he is to be the one lofty in all blessing. He himself is blessing. He himself exists in goodness and greatness and blessing. Now, Paul will go on to say he deserves our praise. That will come later. He deserves our praise. But the point being, he is the one who has all blessing. He is the one who has all goodness and praise and grandeur. And then we're invited in to share in that praise, to share in that goodness, to share in that blessing. And that's why he says, he has blessed us, our God and Father, the Lord Jesus. He has been the one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And if you go on to read the verses then, on down to 6, 7, 8, 9, and so on and so forth, those next several verses are about specific blessings that we enjoy. So here we are, the God of all grandeur, the God of all majesty, that rock, solid stability and security that is ours. So what are we to do? We're to praise him. He is number one. He is the ultimate. He's not number two, number three. He is number one. The ultimate of all praise. So being the rock, on him we stand. Being the refuge, in him we are protected. In being that tall summit, that high mountain, on him we have the high ground. We have the high ground. And you see, this is not unique to the Apostle Paul to write this way. Our own Lord and Master and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God himself, knew this blessing and knew this goodness. He himself shared in this praise and in this glory from eternity, as we sometimes will say, from eternity past, 
the very Son of God, with the Spirit, with the Father, our God, who exists three persons, one God, is already living, already living and sharing in this praise from eternity past. By God's grace, we get the privilege to step in to that realm of eternity and to get a glimpse of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at, uh, in praise, living in giving honor to one another, living in giving honor and blessing and adoration and praise to one another. Think of John 17 at verse 5. How is it that the Son of God himself is already, has already known something about this praise and this blessing? In John 17, 5, Jesus is in prayer. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, already in this place of praise and honor and blessing and devotion. It's already going on. And then when Jesus takes to himself the human body, manifest with that full humanity, with his human nature, uh, born of the virgin there in Bethlehem, he takes to himself human nature, his full uh, manhood. And what is it? He walks with his Father by the Spirit, doing what? Knowing and enjoying this same praise. His purpose in life was living to do his Father's will. There's that place in his own ministry where he is teaching those around him, for this hour I have come. His life is on this mission. His life is in pursuit of the Father's will. For this hour I have come. Then he goes on. There is a voice that, that resounds from heaven. He first prays, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. So in his earthly life, he knows something of this praise and this blessing and this honor, this devotion. And this is why we need the gospel. Our God is the eternal God who exists from eternity past to eternity future, as we would say it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all in their majesty, and yet the beloved God, the one who's blessed above all, sends forth his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ comes to live out the Father's will and then goes to Calvary's cross to die in the place of the sinner. And this whole mission of his is to be giving glory to God. So how do we come into this glory? How do we come to share in this blessing? Well, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus. That's what the passage says. So in Christ, through Christ, by virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is how we come to take part in these blessings. Is your faith and your hope and trust in Jesus this morning? Do you know that Almighty God is. Almighty God exists in all of that majesty. And yet he has condescended, he's come low to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live in that praise to the Father that we couldn't live in. To live in that thanksgiving where we would not be a thankful people. And he went to Calvary's cross for us. And that's why Paul says, in Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, by virtue of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Is your faith in Jesus? You're seated there this morning in a chair. It's the likeness unto faith. You believe that the chair exists. You believe that the chair has support. You believe that the chair will hold you up. You are resting and you are trusting. It's not at all unlike the fact that we're summoned in Scripture to come and place your trust in Jesus Christ, to rest and to trust in him, through whom we would have blessing and honor and thanksgiving and praise and no such things. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, turn over there with me. It's probably in the same page of your Bible. Maybe you just want to turn a page over, perhaps. But we get to share in these heavenly blessings right now upon earth. Look at chapter 2, verse 4 chapter 2, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and here it is, and has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The blessings of fellowship, the blessings of of confidence, the blessings of assurance, the blessings of communion and closeness and friendship and prayer and service. Such things come to us through Christ Jesus. And Paul uses this language. We've been raised up into the heavenly places, into the realms of praise and blessing and honor and devotion and service. Do you see why we begin on this notion of this rock-solid stability of who our God is and how he indeed imparts security to us. This is that place of stability. Now what comes next in verses 4 and 5 is the biblical teaching of what awakens us to these blessings. What awakens us and quickens the heart and stirs the heart concerning of fleeing to the Lord, going to the Lord, casting ourselves upon him by faith. It is through faith that we rest in him, through faith that we trust in him. And this quickening and this awakening and this stirring is not of our own doing. Now, why would I say that? You remember Ephesians chapter 2? It tells us that man is dead in his sins. This new life of entering into his praise, this new life of living a life of praise to God, must come from something that God does. And so the Bible goes back here in these verses, it goes back to the first action steps, to the first start of what God does to awaken our hearts, to open our minds, to indeed give us a new desire. And this is where we now take up the doctrine of the election of God. Look at verses 4 and 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We look ahead just a little bit into verse 5. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. This is God's first action. This is his election of his own in eternity past. Now the words here, he chose us in him, he chose us in him, are the everyday common words to pick, to select, to choose is to elect, 
the Old Testament, it's the common everyday word of selecting. There is the young shepherd boy, David, and he goes over to the brook, and he's going to select those five smooth stones for his slingshot before Goliath. He selects the stones. There's the story in Deuteronomy, for example, in chapter 23, uh, that there is someone who's running away and seeking a place, and it says here that he elects to live in a certain place, a place that pleases him. Uh, The book of Joshua, we perhaps remember some of these words, choose this day whom you will serve. Same language here. Same language from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, and he chose us in him. In the New Testament, some 20, 25 times plus, really, some 20, 25 times, even more in the New Testament, it's the same. It's the everyday word of the selection of people, the everyday word of the selection of choosing things. John 15, 6 has it. Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you, that you should go and bear fruit. Listen to John 15, 19. Again, I chose you out of the world. John 15, 19. I chose you. I selected you out of the world. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul wrote, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And you see, according to Ephesians 1, 4 here, God the Father chose us or predestined us to experience the blessings of salvation. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We're talking about that rock-solid stability and security. This is who our God is. Rock-solid stability and security. Now, we want to tackle one question this morning. One question that arises right out of the passage. And the question is, why? Why? Why would God choose anyone to save anyone? On what basis? Same question. On what basis? Would God choose, God select, God elect? The Bible teaches us we're dead and we're lifeless and we're helpless and we're feeble. The Bible teaches us all flesh is like grass. That wind blows upon it and it fades. The Bible teaches us he knows our frame. He knows we are dust. The Bible teaches us all have sinned and have fallen. The Bible teaches us we are way, way ruined. We have fallen short of his glory. So why? Why in all of the majesty and the supremacy, he who is almighty and lofty and lifted up, why? Why would he save anyone? Ephesians 1.4 at the end says, in love. 
In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Does the Bible here say that he saw that there was something in me, something of that kind of a person who would be given over to trust him? Does the Bible here say that he knew that you would choose him to follow him? Remember what, remember what the Bible says here. What kind of persons are we? Are, we are dead in our sins. We are without hope. We are separated from God. And we are in rebellion against him. Now, friends, you know this. Our age is an age where man is at the center. Our age is an age where our own hearts and our own minds and our own desires are at the center. Our age is where we are trusting in man's efforts. Man's efforts are at the center. You see, therefore we have to conclude, because we are ruined in sin, it's only God's goodness and love and mercy for he is the one who starts that work of saving love. Why did he choose me? He loved you. He loved you and planned to bring you to glory by his grace and mercy. And there's even a bit more clarity on this at the end of verse 4. A bit more clarity. He chose us in him. He chose us in Christ for what purpose? That we should be holy and blameless before him. It's not because we are holy and blameless. He chose us in order that, for the purpose of. This is grace. This is mercy. This is that everlasting love. When we deserve everlasting judgment, he gives mercy. He gives mercy. The glorious grace of the grandeur of God. This is his majesty. Our God is number one. He is ultimate and so let me ask you, does your view of God line up with the Bible here? A.W. Tozer, in one of his popular books, The Knowledge of the Holy, he writes, the decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on troubles. Well, we can say that again, right? <laughs> the decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is. The grandeur, beauty, majesty of God, that rock-solid stability and security of who our God is. We wrap up with a question, so what? So what? Since Paul is in a note of praise 
in writing out Ephesians 1, these series of verses, praise be to our God, blessed be our God, since he's in a note of praise, so what? The doctrine of election and the grandeur of our God and who he is, it eliminates boasting. It puts boasting in the back seat. You're in the back seat, friend. You're in the back seat. It eliminates boasting. We're to be grounded in praise. Every fabric, every part of the fiber of our being is indeed to be thanksgiving for who God is and what he has done and the mercy he has shown. It, it promotes the assurance of our salvation. The doctrine of election is both humbling, but it's also deeply comforting. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and indeed, you, you're not experiencing comfort right now. Cast yourself upon who God is in all of his majesty. Adore him for who he is and the gifts that he bestows. And because of his rock-solid stability and security of his work in your heart and opening in your heart, indeed, there is comfort there. He reveals, to, reveals himself to you to be the one of comfort. He's given you Christ. He's given you the life of Christ who lives in your place. He's given you the death of Christ who dies in your place. He's given you Christ who's been raised from the dead on the third day. He's, you're raised up in Christ. You're seated with him in the heavenly places. What comfort we have. So what? The doctrine of God's grandeur and the doctrine of divine election, eternal election, is a cause now and a hungering now and a summons now, I should say, to pursue holiness. That's what the Bible actually says, that we might be holy and blameless. And that's an echo of the Old Testament, that the people of God might be set apart to be holy and blameless. Are you pursuing holiness are you indeed putting off your sin and putting on Christ? Now, this is the one I will stop with. And perhaps maybe someday uh, down the road, as I have an opportunity to preach once again here, we will camp on this one. So what about the grandeur of God? So what about the doctrine of election? It makes all the difference in the world to be the church. And we here at Good Shepherd are getting a, you know, a first look at the practice of being the visible church. Now, why do I say that? Why does the doctrine of election actually lift up in our minds? It's indeed to lift up in our minds the doctrine of being the church of God. Because our tendency is to flatten out the Christian life saying that all that matters is my relationship to the Lord. Let's get things right here. We get things right here. The doctrine of election is about me and the Lord indeed. He has indeed shown his mercy and his grace and his truth to me, and that's what matters. In fact, I'm not even sure I have to go to church. I'm not even sure we really need to see one another all that much. I'm not even sure we need, we need officers and membership and the sacraments. I'm not sure if these things really, really, in fact, I think they're probably just like some add-ons to the Christian life. And that's the age in which we live. If it's the vertical that matters, then the horizontal can indeed be reduced and lowered. But we, but we know with any familiarity with the book of Ephesians, it is about the life and the practice of the church. And what we're talking about it's keeping in a relationship here between God's sovereign election 
and that he's then established a covenant with his people, and we are to be a covenant people, one with another, with her officers and her members, with her signs and her seals of the covenant, with her membership and testimony, with her care for one another, her diagonal service with one another, uh, with her church discipline and shepherding care of one another. Because after all, the Bible says to make our calling and our election sure. So as Good Shepherd Church, we walk the walk by his grace to build his church. We walk the walk to minister to one another as the visible church. The secret things belong to our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. Amen? Amen. And so we walk together and we minister the gospel to one another. We gladly share in the adoration of our God with one another to praise him, to thank him, to remember his grandeur, to remember he's the ultimate one, he's number one. And we walk together in covenant and testimony together to be the people of God as he's called us to be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we would ask now that you would indeed seal these wonderful promises to our hearts. We do confess that we are an undeserving people. It's your mercy and your grace and your mercy and grace alone. And so may we gladly receive of you, gladly turn to you, cast ourselves upon you, and we thank you for the gift of faith in itself is your grace that we might know you and live in your strength. Continue to minister to us, we ask, and we thank you for your wonderful promises. You are our God and we have none other. You are at work in the church and we gladly praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.